This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. the 2016 Bioceuticals Research Symposium. Right now I'm talking with Dr. Andrew Heyman. And Andrew's got a rather remarkable and varied career. And I'll ask you, Andrew, can you explain a little bit about your career, because it's quite diverse. Uh, it is. I, um, I'm an integrative physician by training. Uh, that means that um, you know I went through conventional medical school and I'm a family physician. Um, so that part is standard. But what's, I think, different about how I entered this world is, is when I entered it. Mm. Oftentimes, practitioners, uh, physicians, let me be biased in that sense, um, they typically go through their training, and at some point in their clinical career, they realize there are limits mm. to what they can do in terms of just standard drugs and surgery. Um, and there's sort of this notion of, you know, how can I learn more? How can I better help my patients? And they might sort of stumble into these older therapies or integrative therapies in a sense. That's pretty standard. My background is a little different than that. Um, I entered the integrative door um, sort of proper when I was 17 years old. Ah. And um, so I was introduced to traditional Chinese medicine and I was um, a first year student in university at the time. Um, and I found a training program uh, just near my school, and I immersed myself in uh, Japanese shiatsu and traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, so most of my instructors were from Japan and China, and I was 17 years old at the time. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with all of it, but I knew that I loved it, and I knew that it was important for me personally it probably would be important for me professionally, um, but there wasn't necessarily a really clear direction, um, but I knew it was important. Mm. And most of my instructors um, didn't speak much English. Right. Uh, I certainly didn't speak any Japanese or, or Mandarin, but I had a very authentic Eastern style education. And the kind of core training that has stood me in such good stead, I think for the rest of my professional life was because of the focus on being present, being aware, and valuing the simple pillars of health, movement, breath, touch, food, sleep, all of these ideas that form the foundation of the oldest healing traditions in the world, and yet we sort of skip over them as physicians. Mm -hmm. We don't really um, have good training in those areas, and that's where I was grounded. So I think for me, it's very different with respect to how I approach patients, how I think about them. And so my challenge is in some ways being an interpreter, um, translating the languages of both sides of that discussion and debate about how do we approach health and healing in humans. And there are different ways uh, in that regard. So I have the great and deep benefit then of being fully immersed in traditional healing methods for years 
before I ever became a physician. And then since then, have worked at a very sort of high academic level, um, thinking like a, a, a scientist and a researcher. Um, so in that sense, I've had to bridge the gap mm. of what we know empirically and what we can measure. And that's a fine line to walk. You say a couple of interesting things that, that raises some ideas in me. And, and one of the things that I heard you speak about in your plenary lecture was that you learned about patterns in oriental medicine, mm. that they focus on patterns. Yep. Modern medicine focuses on uh, clusters of symptoms, but are we looking at patterns or do you see a correlation or contrast? Where do you see modern medicine either being similar to oriental medicine or totally disparate? Uh, I would say in its um, sort of classic difference, they're totally separate uh, in the way that they uh, look at the patient and assign meaning to information. Um, traditional healing systems by definition are pattern recognition based. Um, and in conventional medicine, if you wanna call it Western medicine, um, we start from the supposition that um, our power comes from our ability to peer ever more deeply into the uniqueness of a body system or process. So the cardiologist gets the heart and the neurologist gets the nervous system and the immunologist gets the immune system and so on and so forth. And that's a model, it's a concept in a sense. Um, and it allows us to move ever more deeply into understanding sort of a biological reality of a disease process. Mm -hmm. But the great intellectual challenge is, how do we put those pieces back together? How do you get a cardiologist to talk to a psychiatrist, to talk to a gastroenterologist, and so on and so forth? That's enormously complicated. And to bring a biological reality to that also demands a kind of biostatistical and mathematical modeling. So there's this tension now in medicine between the older way of kind of what I would call silo-based medicine, everybody's in a silo, yep. and then this newer kind of systems biology approach, which is a whole different way of thinking, but interestingly, better maps and reflects onto a pattern recognition-based um, approach that looks and feels a lot like the traditional healing methods. And maybe what systems biology will eventually be able to do is to measure and codify um, these kind of patterns that humans express um, and bring meaning to what's been observed for thousands of years. That there's a healing going on in medicine in a sense. Yeah. Um, you wear many hats and one of those is the Director of Integrative Medicine at the George Washington State University. But you also are in practice. Yes. So I've got to ask you, how do your peers look at what you do? And indeed, what exactly do you do? <laughs> Uh, it's a good question. I think it depends on which peers you ask. <laughs> um, you know, what I've seen is that the field has changed dramatically um, since I entered uh, in a formal sense. Um, when in the mid 90s, uh, after having done shiatsu and sort of these traditional healing methods for a while, um, I was invited to run a big research center in alternative therapies for heart disease. Um, at a major university, uh, University of Michigan, um, right. which is considered, you know, a premier research center. And so I immediately went into this mode of, you know, how do we better evaluate uh, these therapies? And there are all sorts of research challenges to just asking that question. At that time, most of my peers um, were shocked and surprised and even potentially disappointed that such an institution would even allow this kind of research to happen. 
And now, fast forward, and I you know, direct this program at the George Washington University, and we have a sort of fully formed and growing and, and even relatively mature platform now for integrative medicine. Uh, we confer higher degrees, a master's and PhD, our graduates now qualify to sit for this new Board of Integrative Medicine. It's in the United States considered its own specialty now. Now that's only right. a year old, yeah. oh, okay. but that's new, right? But it's amazing that mm. that's occurred. Mm. And so it means then that you can have kind of a peer-to-peer -peer discussion on a level that we couldn't before. Right. Um, so there's a greater acceptance of the power and value of an integrative approach to care that's happened as a result of you know, public interest, but also a cultural shift in medicine. It's changed a lot, even in the last several years. And so into your clinic life, yeah. what do you specialize in? So, do you specialize? <laughs> I, I, you because know, that was a pretty broad talk yeah, where you, know, you encompass I, a lot. Yeah, I, I have to say, what you find as a practitioner, if you're doing these sorts of therapies, um, there are lots of doorways that you can walk through um, to start learning how to apply these approaches. It could be herbs, it could be acupuncture, it could be hormones, it could be detox, it could be lifestyle with nutrition and exercise or mind-body therapies. Most people pick and choose, mm. you know, which door they wanna move through. Uh, Patients don't tend to choose. No, they don't, they're, they're optimizers, right? They're very utilitarian, but a practitioner has to choose. And usually what happens is when you first start, you have a narrow skill set and you attract a relatively narrow patient population, usually relatively well. And they have some basic health challenges that haven't fully resolved through a conventional standard approach. And everybody gets excited because we can see those patients improving. Patients are delighted they found a practitioner that's thinking outside the box. The practitioner's delighted because they see their patients improving in ways that they didn't through the standard approach. But the problem occurs when the word spreads. Mm because the person that you just helped with some stress and weight loss and nutrition brings in their sister with rheumatoid arthritis and depression and you know um, cancer. And all of a sudden, your patient population starts to shift and become more and more complicated. And you wake up one day and you have a practice like mine where there's no filter at the door. There's no sort of description of what we take and what we don't take because we sort of accept all patients at all states of health and illness. And I, I joke that my patient population is like the island of misfit toys. <laughs> so we, it's all the throwaways. Yeah. You know, they've already been to the major universities, they've been to the local specialist, mm -hmm. they've tried even various natural therapies, and they're looking for an even deeper approach to try and unwind the depth of their illness pattern. And it's amazing when you get it right. So it's hard for me today to say, what do I do? I would say first and foremost, um, we have a long discovery process to try and really identify what's wrong with this patient. What's the cause of their problem? And then the sensibility component is we would prefer to use more natural therapies and lifestyle interventions and self-management, but I certainly go through a lot of prescription pads throughout the year, um, but diagnostically as as we categorize patients, I don't necessarily focus more so on one or the other, although I could say that I may have a predominance um, of very complicated patients due to um, Lyme 
and other biotoxic exposures. Uh, that forms the core of the research that I do, and we use it as a model of how do people who contract those chronic infections become so severely ill. Um, so that would be one area, I would say, that um, sort of sets our clinic apart. Something you said just before about uncovering the, the, on, the layers of the onion, if you like, of, mm -hmm. of chronic disease, and you've just spoken on the HB axis and uh, you know, the adrenals, quote unquote. Yeah. And the important message that I got out of that is something that I've known for ages but twigged just now, and that is my love for American ginseng. And I've always said, oh, it's a mind ginseng rather than the other yeah. ginseng. They're all working on the mind. That's right. So when you're talking about therapy and we're talking yeah. about stress, yeah. how do you, let's say the word ratify, uh -huh. how do you bring it all together when you're talking about, do I look at psychological support uh -huh talking, counseling, doing tests with regards to de depression or anxiety scales right. versus physical type of interventions, whether I give them cortisol, whether I, well, I say I, you, mm -hmm. <laughs> whether you give them cortisol as a slight buffer, whether you are very cautious about yeah. using that because they're yeah. as in, an infectious agent right. that's, that's causing this sort of um, symptom picture. Right. How do you ratify that altogether or choose? I, I think um, you have to start from the perspective of um, do I really understand um, what I'm looking at? You can start from are their cortisol levels low mm. or high, but that doesn't really tell you ultimately what the cause is. So you have to go to the next level. We do that because we offer special structural MRIs of the brain so we can very precisely measure key centers such as the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, the caudate, the putamen. We want to know, is it a brain that's been under assault? And what's the pattern that we identify? Mm -hmm. We then also go to the immune system. We look at both the innate immune response, we also, and we look at the adaptive immune response. We look at vectors and other immune threats uh, because that's such a key part of the discovery process. And once we get through all of that information, we can say, this looks like stress that you know, sort of damaged your response or nope, this is an immune threat. And we're just looking at a reflection of that in the cortisol pattern. But we really wanna feel confident that we know what we're dealing with first. Um, and that's where the therapies really shine in that regard. Are we at the point yet where we can measure um, the trends, if you like, or indeed the activity of the immune system? You know, we can measure neutrophils, we can measure eosinophils, but do we track them? We tend to have a snapshot, in, certainly in orthodox medicine. How do you differentially look at that to say, hey, listen, there's a real problem with a chronic infection going on here? What do you do? Um, we use a set of very specialized immune markers on both the innate and the adaptive side. So I look at uh, the alternate complement pathway, C3A, C4A. Uh, we also look at transcription factors such as TGF-beta-1, which drives TH17. Uh, we look at neuropeptides such as vasoactive intestinal peptide um, or uh, brain-derived hormones such as melanocyte-stimulating hormone or antidiuretic hormone. Yep. We want to know the full complement of the impact of an immune system that's dysregulated. And we track those markers every several months to ensure resolution. Right. Um, we now are going to the next level and running genomic studies and pairing that with the patient's proteome, proteome if you want to call it that, right, right. Uh, to look at where are their predispositions based on their immune patterns. 
And so this is the next level of complexity because we're seeing things and the way the immune system is behaving and the damage that it's occurring that we don't understand yet. And I'll give you an example. We know that Lyme as an entity will trigger an immune response. And in the genetically susceptible, that immune response will persist even if they clear the infection. One of the consequences of that chronic inflammation and we just published a study on this, is that it damages the brain in very specific ways. That these are not just immune markers that reflect an immune system that's um, not returning to baseline, but that in fact, they are the same markers that are injuring key centers in the brain. What's interesting is that when you take a patient who has the same symptoms as Lyme and the same immune response, yep. for example, a mold patient, they look identical in their proteomic and immune um, pattern, but the injury to the brain is different. We don't know why they're different. There are other immune patterns that are occurring. There's likely a genomic contribution as well right. that's leading to the uniqueness of the injury. So when we do our special MRI scans, we can tell when a patient has had Lyme, when they've had mold, when they've had a traumatic brain wow. injury, when they've had stress, when they've had MS. And you can differentiate. And we can differentiate that based on the MRI. The core of all of those processes is neuroinflammation, yep. right? So it's a brain on fire, but why are the injury patterns so unique to the exposure when the symptoms and the general immune response is the same? There are pieces to the immune system that we're not capturing, and there's clearly a genetic contribution that we need to better understand. What would you say to practitioners then who see this inflamed brain and might be enthused by some of the work of David Perlmutter, mm -hmm. Alessio Fasano, and say, okay, get them on a gluten-free diet. Mm -hmm. Doesn't necessarily look at in immune issues. Right. So what caveats would you tell them to say, hey, listen, it's great, but don't forget the... Yeah. Uh, I would messages. say in the way that we approach uh, those issues, certainly from a Dr. Fasano or Dr. Perlmutter, they focus a lot on food and the way that food might trigger the immune system. Uh, what we found is that especially in the 20 or 30% of, of, of patients that have a genetic predisposition to this kind of chronic inflammation, um, you really need to more fully identify all of the immune uh, uh, triggers first and deal with them before you even get into food. That in fact, that's a third or fourth or fifth step. That you have to begin to modulate the immune system and decrease the microbial load or make sure the patient is getting out of the moldy environment or decreasing their stress, whatever is primarily inflaming the brain. And then once we have that under better control, we'll go to food. But we see food as actually a secondary or tertiary exposure yep. uh, in our patterning. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they don't have digestive issues and problems. They will and they do. Sure. But we don't see that as a primary problem in our patient population. But they're sick. They're, I mean, they're, they're absolutely sick. sick and we still need to get the gluten out of the diet. And we still, you know, we need to do all of that. But we don't lead with that. And we, we don't lead with it because what we have found clinically is patients don't feel much better when they clean up the diet. Right. Because they've have got to so do, much other stuff going They have going so much on going on. on. You need a rescue first. That's right. Right. Now, you have particular interest in mold mm -hmm. um, issues, chronic mold exposure, um, which is n named CIRS. That's correct. So can you explain that? How does it differentiate from the inflammatory response from other 
causes, if sure. you like. Yeah. yeah, you know, what it really gets to is the um, first, the basics of the immune system. There are really two arms to it. There's what's called the innate side, which is the primary early response. Um, it's the thugs of the immune system. Yeah. It's macrophages and neutrophils that rush to the scene of the crime and they start producing inflammatory proteins that not only create inflammation itself, but also call in the rest of the healing response. Mm -hmm. What's supposed to happen though is a handoff from this early innate side to the other part of the immune system that's called the adaptive or acquired. This is where the memory st cells start to play an important role, what are called T cells and B cells that produce uh, antibodies and allow the immune system to uh, uh, upregulate more quickly the next time there's an immune uh, threat. What happens though in a mold patient mm. is that for genetic reasons, they are stuck in the innate side of the immune response, the unthinking side. They become very, very inflamed, mm. but there's no handoff and that's for genetic reasons. So they don't produce antibodies. They don't have a, the regulatory component of that other more sophisticated side of the immune system. So they remain chronically inflamed, but it's within the innate. Uh, response. Um, that's very different and unique than other states of inflammation. So for example, the kind of inflammation we measure for cardiovascular patients, IL-6, TNF-alpha, PI-1, fibrinogen, uric acid, these you know standard markers, mm -hmm. um, they are not reflected uh, within the innate immune response. Mm -hmm. um, and also uh -huh. the, 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 the diseases on the adaptive side. <laughs> yep. So when we lose immune tolerance, when the body loses its ability to determine self from not self, and we see the um, development of autoimmune diseases as a result, that's um, problems in the adaptive side, problems in the smarter side, because that side has lost the ability to determine what's me and what's not me. Yeah, yeah. So that's where most of medicine focuses, right? That's where rheumatology focuses, that's where um, problems related to cancer occur, where the body um, has lost its ability to surveil and repair. Mold and Lyme and other biotoxic threats are uniquely situated within the innate side of the immune system, very different and we know in particular that innate immune activation leads to injury to the nervous system. Yeah. That that's the part of the body that takes the biggest hit. Mm. And for us in particular, the brain. So even when you have a patient where you've cleared the Lyme, you've removed the mold, they can not only remain inflamed, but they continue to damage their brain. And you have to fix that central nervous system piece as part of a whole therapeutic process to get them better. I could ask you five questions in one <laughs> go here, but let's talk about therapy. So you need to fix the brain. Yes. How do you go about that? So we know two things have to happen first for that to occur. The first is you gotta remove the threat or exposure. Mm. Turn off the stress, uh, clean up the mold, kill the bugs, whatever you need to do, and clean up the gut, fix the diet, um, modulate hormones. There's a whole series of steps that we have to go through to make sure that we're turning off the immune system. So, um, so the first is deal with the exposure, and the second is return the immune system back to baseline. And we do that through special lipid therapy. We use phospholipids and butyrate. We use specialized forms of fish oil and fish oil extracts. Uh, we, you know, certainly modulate the immune system through plant sterol extracts and. Uh, you know, other natural products. But once you get through all of that, you're still left with a brain that's damaged. Right. 
And we have a few tricks that we use in that regard that we've shown in pre and post studies that repair the brain. Neuroplasticity Neuroplasticity. Hey. So there you go. So one of them is an extract of ginseng. It's a Chinese ginseng. Right. And it turns out that there are very biologically active components of ginseng called ginsenicides. And there's the RB line, RB1, RB2, RB3, and then there's the RG line. And RG3 in particular has been shown to be the most neuroprotective. It decreases inflammation in the brain and it induces repair. So we use that as a nasal spray. We also use nicotinamide riboside, which is a B vitamin derivative yep. that's also been shown to be protective for the brain. And we finally use uh, something called vasoactive intestinal peptide. This is a peptide that's been known about for years, uh, but much more recently it's been identified as maybe the most potent uh, vasoactive regulator. And what it does is it improves blood flow to the brain and it allows adult progenitor cells to do their job more effectively. So we see repair. That's a key feature for us. So we use the RG3, we use the nicotinamide, we use VIP spray, and there are several things as well, other, other things as well. What about the, the, you mentioned that you said Chinese ginseng, what species is that? So that would be just a Panax ginseng. A Panax ginseng, yeah. right. So um, when you're looking at, say, the use of Panax quinquefolium, mm -hmm. which has a, a, a not reversed, but, but a changed profile of the RG to RBs, mm -hmm. Do you find um, not as effective use of that? No. Yeah. So it tends not to be used for the immune system, or tends not to be as useful for, for the, the brain. Mind. It's better for. Are we talking structure here? Yeah, or? we're talking structure. And fats. You're talking um, phosphatidylserine. Choline. Choline. You use. Yeah, in particular. Yeah. So that's the main structural component for the myelin, which is you know the coating to nerves, as well as every cell membrane in the body. And we know that when you have innate immune activation, not only does it injure sort of the superstructures of the brain, but it injures every cell membrane in the body. They yeah. become sort of shaggy and worn and not efficient at um, <clears throat> drawing in nutrients or excreting waste. So we use things like butyrate, to clear out very long chain fats or renegade fats, and then we add phosphatidylcholine. Butyrate, particular bitter taste. Yeah, it's not fun. No one likes butyrate. <laughs> except no in one, butter. No one, yeah, except in butter, that's correct. So ghee and other things. Can I ask you a question about uh, the toxic molds? Sure. So one of the common ones that's mentioned in the US literature is Stachybotrytis yeah. chartarum, mm -hmm. which doesn't appear in the Australian literature. Not that there's much. It's seen, it appears though that we have different species causing mm -hmm. this toxic building mold okay. issue. Yep. What can you tell us about the toxic building mold? Why is it such an issue? Why aren't the building practices that good? What can we do about that? What do mm. patients have to do about it? Is it down to moving? That is, um, I think, the core question for people who have mold sensitivity. And let me be clear, in conventional medicine, um, we are typically taught that mold exposure can lead to an allergic type response. Um, it can also lead to a much more serious pulmonary uh, infection. Mm, that's right. Mm. Um, but only recently in the literature has it been recognized that it can also be a trigger to the innate immune system. Right. That idea has not quite caught on yet. Yeah. And it turns out about 20% of the population has a genetic predisposition to this sort of mold sensitivity. We know in the United States, up to 50% of US buildings have toxic mold. 
And the problem is, if you're genetically predisposed, wherever you go, you can get you sick. Can carry it, yeah. So even though we can get you out of that environment and we can work to turn off the body's response to the inflammation uh, and repair the brain, there's no guarantee that once we get you better as a patient, you won't end up in another moldy environment and trigger the same cascade of events. That we can't fix. I think there are probably um, not good reasons, but reasons why we haven't seen the kind of um, public health response to this issue, issue of sick building syndrome. Because unlike most other chronic illnesses, um, this is one where you can point a finger. It's the builder, the contractor, the employer, um, you know. It, it, so the issue of worksite safety yeah. becomes real. And uh, there are potentially culpable individuals or, or groups. And, um, and we see this, that there, you know, there have been lawsuits mm. where families or groups of families sue you know, the, the landlord or the employer or you know, the building contractor, and they win. But still, it's a, it's a field that's in its infancy yeah, yeah. in terms of being accepted as a clinical reality. It's certainly more in its infancy in Australia. I, I, I looked up even one more so. person that was teaching about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know there, there's a recognition here. But, but for us, the great revelation has been, yes, mold is an issue, but there's a variety of exposures that turn on the same immune response and create the same symptom complex and damage the brain and so on and so forth, that it represents a whole disease entity. Mold of, is only one trigger of many. Yeah. I wish I had about six more hours with you, um, <laughs> but I'm going to try and ask you two last quick questions. Sure. The first one is, I'll ask, I'll ask them for, first. Uh, the first one is, do you think we're anywhere near measuring biological resilience, which you mentioned in your talk? We are. Um, there are actually a series of studies uh, looking at the constellation of markers that together might indicate resiliency. Um, so we're getting closer. It's as much a mathematical challenge as it is a, um, one of, of measuring itself. And it's one of the reasons why we've moved to genomic work and transcriptomics, meaning the RNA expression of, of genes, um, because we're interested in why some people don't get as sick. And there is resiliency built into our systems. Um, but usually researchers don't think like that. Uh, we're beginning to ask those questions. Uh, one of the other research studies I'm involved in is with uh, US Navy SEALs. And we know that some of them experience a traumatic brain injury mm. and become very, very sick, yeah. uh, permanently ill, yep. and others can experience the same set of events and they don't. So um, I work with several different military physicians where we're collecting genomic data, proteomic data, as well as um, unique markers from the brain to try and identify why is it that some people, uh, some Navy SEALs um, are able to absorb multiple exposures, concussive events, lack of sleep, stress, toxins, and they're fine and their brain is fine. And then there's another group that never recover. So because I'm only going to ask one question, I'm going to ask it in a, in a way that I can put two things together. So you mentioned the importance of tumor, um, 
transforming growth factor beta yeah. and its control of interleukin 17. Yes. I'm really interested in the work of uh, Dan Littman mm -hmm. and Avalio Ivanov with regards to segmented filamentous bacteria and mm -hmm. you know this interesting programmer, if you like, of the infant immune system. How does that play out? And where can people learn more about this? Because we've only given them a snippet, the tip of yeah. the tip of the iceberg. Where can they learn more about your work? So I think um, as a framework for discussion, probably the website survivingmold.com um, is where a lot of this research is contained, where we've, you know, we um, uh, house our studies, um, as well as all of the definitions uh, of what these markers are, including TGF-beta-1, which, yeah. which is, you know, you raise it and you smile, but you have to understand there are 20,000 studies in the literature yeah. on TGF-beta-1, yeah. and it's growing. Yeah. So, and it's growing. And it's growing change. every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we, and we know that sometimes when that marker's high, it's regulatory and positive for health. Mm. And sometimes when it's high, it's not. And it's not when we see its impact on the pathological development of T-reg cells. Yeah. So T-reg cells can become... Um, Hoodwinked. Exactly. Yeah. Hijacked. Exactly. So when we see that alteration, um, it, it's a complicated and interesting marker and topic. We, we measure it, we, we know it's important, um, but we're still learning more about it. Can practitioners access your work via published work? Sure. Via published yeah, books, they can search. for instance? Yeah. Well, I don't have any books per se, mm. um, but a lot of it, again, is on the Surviving Mold website. I, the book is coming. You know, I, I added to the list. <laughs> um, you know, running the master's and PhD program and uh, clinic and, and other work obviously takes up a lot of my time. Interestingly, where I feel the great deficiency is in the field, uh, I argue, um, that there is no definitive textbook. Mm. One reliable source of information yeah. that pulls these threads together in a sort of evidence-based and meaningful way. There have been good attempts, but to me, that work has not been done. If I were to do one thing in that regard, and it's just my sensibility, I, I would, and we're talking about this at, at George Washington University, beginning to put together well, I for that, one, that tome. I, for one, certainly look forward to that publication. It's an, it is an absolute pleasure to meet you. Finally. Thank you very much. Yeah. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Hi, this is Stacey, the baby maker, Robert. I have put together more than a decade of my clinical experience into developing the first online mentoring program that deals with the ever-growing area of natural fertility. My Babymaker Network Mentoring Program is an online interactive program where you will learn how to address all aspects of fertility issues. If you are ready to be a part of an atmosphere that helps you build your practice while helping couples build their family, I look forward to getting to know you in the Babymaker Mentoring Program please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the education tab for more information and to register.